Tebby, Troy, Miss Troy's on the line. Great. Let's bring her on. Good to have you with us, or him, pardon me. Uh, glad to have you with us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. The narrative in the media is that the Trump House uh, White House is in disarray, that there's all this infighting and things that, that's going on. You've written this new book uh, about that particular topic, and what you've shown is that most White Houses have this kind of infighting going on. I mean, let's just go back to Washington and the fight that he had with Hamilton about a central bank. Yeah, look, uh, my, my book, Fight House, is indeed about fighting in the White House, mostly in the modern era, where we talk about once the development of the White House staff happened, how the White House staff has contributed to the fighting. And it, nobody is denying that there's fighting in the Trump White House, but they're certainly fighting in every White House since Truman, which is what, what I look at. And it makes sense. There's a whole bunch of alpha males, now today alpha females as well, and they're looking at very high-stakes policy issues. It's a very kind of cramped environment. There's a lot of pressure. And this stuff really matters. It's, it's very high stakes. So, yes, there, there is a lot of fighting, and there has always been a lot of fighting in the White House. So is, is the Trump White House any – is there more infighting there than there has been previously? Well, one of the things – one of the points I make in White House is I don't have access to the archives on the Trump White House yet. I don't okay. have access to the oral histories. My book looks at the, the looks deep into the weeds in the various previous administrations when we just have more information. So the Bush 43 administration, the oral histories just came online in 2019. That means in 2031 or 2035, depending on what happens in this next election, we'll have that kind of detailed information on what was really going on in the Trump administration. And I look forward to writing a follow-up then. Yeah, that'd be very interesting. Uh, what are some of the big uh, fights that went on behind closed doors that perhaps uh, my listeners are not aware of? Well, one of the greatest fights in White House history was over the recognition of Israel back in 1948. Harry Truman was the president. His Secretary of State, John, uh, George Marshall, was reluctant to, in fact, opposed to recognizing Israel. And he had a young aide, later became famous, but at the time he was just a, a young upstart lawyer named Clark Clifford. Mm -hmm. and Clark Clifford was assigned by Truman to make the case in the Oval Office for recognizing Israel over the objections of the Secretary of State and former general and writer of the Marshall Plan, George Marshall, who Truman revered above every other person in public life. And Clifford, smart lawyer that he is, won the day. And Marshall was so mad at the way it worked out that he never again spoke to Clifford or uttered his name for the rest of his life. Wow. Yeah, that's carrying that's carrying a, you know, a kind of a ticked off attitude for a long time. huh? Yeah, well, that's the, the fun thing about the book about Fight House, because we really see that some of these people will carry a grudge for a long time after their, their time in the White House is over. What I think I thought perhaps uh, one of the big. Uh, big discussions and fights that went on during the Truman White House would have been, do you drop, you know, you know, little man and, and drop, uh, you know, the, the atomic weapons over there in Japan? I know there was a lot of talk at that time. What Was it, uh, you know, hostile talk between people? Yeah, I didn't find any evidence of, of there being real hostility over that. That was, that was obviously a grave decision with a lot of uh, huge implications. It was also very tightly held. Right? It was a very dark secret that the U.S. had these capabilities. Mm -hmm. So not every big issue leads to fighting. And one of the things I, I argue in the book, in Fight House, is that when you have a kind of general ideological alignment, even if you don't agree on every issue, if you're generally ideologically aligned, if you really kind of believe in a larger cause, which obviously 
all the advisors did in, in terms of fighting World War II and defeating the Japanese, then you're going to have less fighting. And I think that's what happened there. Yeah, it's really interesting that uh, the narrative by the press on the our, our, uh, our president uh, president has been, well, they just can't get along on anything, and he's always replacing this person or that person or whatever. I remember that kind of revolving door going on a lot, but I'm the type of a geek kind of, uh, you know, into uh, politics kind of person that would remember this kind of stuff. I mean, there's been this kind of infighting in just about every White House that I can remember. Well, it's clear that the tenures of people in top White House jobs is, is short, right? People don't last long in these jobs, and that's always been the case. I mean, you can look statistically and see whether some administrations have shorter tenures than others. This administration may have may have shorter average tenures, but there's other factors going on beyond just infighting. So it is true that you've got short tenures and you always have a lot of fighting in the White House. And again, I look forward to seeing in the archives on, on this administration, but what I found in previous administrations. So, for example, in Obama, I think he had three chiefs of staff in his first term that were actual full-time chiefs of staff. And he also had an interim one as well, Pete Rouse. So Obama had trouble figuring out the right calibration for a chief of staff, in part because Valerie Jarrett was his senior advisor, and Jarrett was known as the night stalker. She would go to the president's <laughs> residence at night and talk to the president privately about what she wanted to happen policy-wise. And a lot of aides, including the chiefs of staff, felt like she was circumventing the process and going around them. And that's another one of the factors I talk about in White House. If you have a good process, you're going to see less fighting. But if you have a process where people can circumvent it, you're going to see more fighting. That that's very interesting. I had no idea that was going on. That's that's a that's a little nugget. I'm gonna, I I've got to sit down. I've got a copy of the book. I need to sit down and read it. I've been so busy following Iowa, and New Hampshire right now that I, I haven't really had time to spend time to to read your book. But it just looks really really interesting. To a kind of a wonky guy like me, I find this really very interesting. Take us back to the Kennedy White House and the Johnson White House, if you could. What were they like? Sure. And let me just say one thing about White House, which is I, I think, uh, you know, you as a wonky guy might enjoy it, but I think everybody will enjoy it because I think everybody can relate to these stories. And also whatever organization you're in, the lessons I have about how to control conflict will apply. Now, in the Johnson and Kennedy administrations, you had a very interesting shifting power dynamic because in the first, in the Kennedy term, Robert F. Kennedy is the attorney general, he's the president's brother, and he's also the closest person to Kennedy. And he uses his position to marginalize and humiliate Lyndon Johnson. They had crazy nicknames for him, like Uncle Cornpone. And Johnson <laughs> is really in an uncomfortable and unhappy position. The unhappiest part of his life was when he was serving as vice president of the United States. And then Kennedy is tragically assassinated. And Robert F. Kennedy is still the attorney general, but suddenly he doesn't have a president on his side in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. And now Johnson uses the opportunity to marginalize Kennedy. And so the power dynamics shift. And then Kennedy leaves, and he keeps making noise about running for president while the Vietnam War is raging. And Johnson is constantly looking over his shoulder at Robert F. Kennedy and what Kennedy is doing on Vietnam, and that's affecting his judgment in the decisions he makes on Vietnam. So here was a, a, a fight, an internal fight, that actually had national and global implications. When you were reading uh, about Johnson's White House, was there information there that he felt that he must pursue the civil rights legislation that uh, John F. Kennedy wanted to uh, to pass in Congress? Because Lyndon Baines Johnson was anything but 
a purveyor of uh, civil rights during the time that he was the head of the Senate uh, there in Washington, D.C.? I think Johnson saw the opportunity of using the Kennedy legacy to pursue certain pieces of legislation. And you see this throughout, that uh, whether it was the Great Society or the civil rights legislation or even the Vietnam War to some degree. He felt like he was either pursuing the Kennedy agenda or, or at least taking advantage of the Kennedy agenda so he could say, well, look, I'm just following what the, our martyred president would do. And that helped him get past the things that he wanted to get. He wanted that big pieces of legislation passed. And he did. And some of them I admire. And some of them I, I admire less because we're still paying the cost for some of them. So uh, J- Johnson really did use that Kennedy mantle to try and advance some pieces of legislation. Teddy Troy is our guest. Uh, his book, Fight House, I, I think it's one to read just so that you can understand that the narrative that the media has tried to build about how the Trump White House is dysfunctional uh, is that a lot of White Houses behind uh, the scenes is uh, dysfunctional. So, Tevi, what was it about this particular subject that really got you interested in writing this book? Well, actually, what you just said in that last comment is what got me interested. This whole question of, is there White House fighting? Has there been White House fighting? And does it lead to dysfunctionality? So I would argue that there have been many administrations where you had healthy fighting, where people can kind of sort it out at around the table, and then afterwards they will shake hands and say, okay, you know, you're, you're position one in front of the president, but let's move on. I'm not going to not utter your name for the rest of my life as, as we <laughs> had with the, the Clifford Marshall incident. It's wild. And so, and also if you have too little fighting, meaning if you have complete agreement on everything, then you have groupthink. And mm-hmm. we saw that a little bit in the Johnson administration with respect to the Vietnam War. There was a sense that nobody could raise any questions or queries or complaints about the war. In fact, I even say in the book that there was a little grouping at State Department that had some questions about the war, and they were so scared of Johnson because he didn't want any disagreement on the war that they called themselves the non-group. They didn't want to call themselves a group, and they had secret meetings so Johnson wouldn't find out about them. So that's not a good and healthy way to foster good political discussion and good process about how to get things done. So it was that really that got me interested. Is is there a point at which fighting leads to dysfunction? How much fighting is healthy and how much fighting have we had in previous administrations? Precisely because of this media narrative you're talking about that suggested that fighting had never happened before. All right. So my last question is, uh, uh, let's talk about the Nixon White House. What was it like behind the scenes in the Nixon White House? Yeah, the Nixon White House is one of the craziest and one of the most uh, fun parts of my book, Fight House. In the Nixon White House, you had Henry Kissinger, who was at the time relatively young. We think of him as this old man prognosticating on, on foreign policy. But he was, he was insecure in his early 40s, very smart, heavy Germanic accent, which was not necessarily an advantage in late 1960s America because we weren't that far removed from World War II. Mm-hmm. He was also Jewish in an administration with not a lot of Jews in it. And he was pitted against William Rogers, who was the Secretary of State kind of a patrician-type guy who had a 20-year relationship with Nixon dating back to the Eisenhower years. And um, Nixon should, by all, you know, by the statistics, should have been siding with Rogers. But he liked Kissinger. He liked Kissinger's brilliance. Uh, he thought Rogers didn't really have anything to teach him on foreign policy. And Kissinger would do all these things to marginalize Rogers and to diminish Rogers. And, um, and they had some pretty titanic fights. 
Uh, but one great story is that Kissinger used to uh, like to date the ladies. And uh, one late woman he was dating was a Bond girl, Jill St. John. Yeah. And it showed up in the newspapers that Kissinger was dating her. Kissinger goes to Nixon, complains that Secretary of State Rogers leaked the information. The truth is that Kissinger leaked the information, A, so that people would know he was dating a Bond girl, <laughs> but B, also so as to diminish Rogers in the eyes of Nixon. Oh, Wow. That's that's great stuff, and you're going to get a lot of it out of this book, Tevi Troy, Fight House. Tevi, thanks so much for your time. It's it's available online and at uh, bookstores around the nation, and people should pick up a copy. Just make a great read, no doubt about it. Thank you so much, Dave. All right. Talk to you later. Tevi Troy here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Can you imagine that? I didn't know that uh, Kissinger dated Jill St. John. Lucky man he was. Diamonds are forever. That was Jill St. John. All right, a break. And then more on the Dave Ellswick Show.